We're two brothers, and we've been pretty passionate around changing the world for a very long time. These are the Kielberger brothers, Craig and Mark. They have built an empire around their charity formerly called Free the Children, now known as WE. It's an international organization that really knows how to engage youth. So much that it's now the largest youth-driven charity in the world. But scandal struck the brothers when Wee's relationship with the Canadian Prime Minister came into question. I was just 12 years old. I wanted to help fight child labor. Back in 1994, Mark and Craig founded Free the Children in Canada. And then the brothers created We Villages, which is what they describe on their website as a holistic approach to development that empowers a community to lift itself out of poverty. Before long, they grew their Toronto-based charity into a worldwide movement. The biggest pillar of their charity, We Day. You really are gonna change the world with your voice. It's a fundraising event series held in cities around the world featuring some of the biggest names. But in 2020, the We name started making headlines for different reasons. We're learning more about the controversial contract the federal government signed with We Charity. The brothers came under scrutiny for their relationship with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his family. The Trudeaus have appeared at many We Days throughout the years. Under the Trudeau government, We Charity was awarded a student volunteer program contract worth more than $900 million. The charity backed out of administering the program in early July because of a controversy, stemming from the Trudeau government awarding WE a sole source contract despite its close ties to the Trudeau family. The brothers agreed to testify to tell their side of the story about how they're involved with the Canadian government. We were not chosen for this work by public servants because of our relationship with politicians. We were chosen because we were willing to leverage Hi everyone, it's Nashua, and today I am recording a new episode of Habibti Please with my co-host again, Ryan Deshpande, and we're very honored to have Hawa with us. And Hawa is somebody I know um, because I saw her speak at an event I was at, at a Muslim women's event, and I reached out to her because I was in the, starting the same graduate program and feeling very lonely and isolated, and we happened to have the same supervisor coincidentally, and one of the first warm people on campus to me that made me feel like I belonged and took me out for a frozen yogurt and is an amazing, phenomenal person. And I, when I was starting a podcast, that's more of like a Muslim feminist focus. I was deciding what my fall lineup was going to be and how was name was one of the first three names that came to mind. Um, so I'm super honored to have Hawa with us today. And when I told Ryan, Ryan was like, I know of Hawa. So like Hawa is somebody that has touched many circles. I think of younger people and is a young person yet has influenced many of us in great ways. So we're really lucky and honored to have Hawa with us today on this Sunday morning. And um, Hawa, if you don't mind introducing yourself to the audience a bit before we dive in. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. That was really beautiful. I remembered the frozen, the frozen yogurt. And I remember also coming into that space and feeling quite isolated and alone. So my name is Hawa. I grew up on the West 
coast. My family is originally from Somalia and I came here when I was quite young. Um, I moved to Toronto maybe only about seven or eight years ago. So this is quite a new environment and space for me. And all of my professional work has actually been in the youth sector. So I spent a lot of my life working with young people as a young person myself and then never really wanted to leave the sector. I've done quite a bit of community organizing in what I think are very different ways of organizing um, and I've worked with organizations for a long time around building their capacity to support people who often don't get the kind of support they deserve in organization organization spaces. So I think that's a, that's a little that's a little snapshot. I do a lot of things. I'm connected to a lot of people in a lot of places, and um, I think relationships are really key to the work that I'm invested in doing. Thank you so much for that, and that's a great way to begin today. We wanted to discuss an organization that does work with youth. So um, Me To We in Canada is something that I think many Canadian teenagers know um, and younger than that because of the exposure in our high schools, because of where we see it sold to us and marketed in different ways. So if you're okay with starting with Me To We, we would really appreciate that after we read your Ricochet article recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... Can you get hit with a defamation suit if the organization is folding? The question, that question is always in the, in the back of my, my head. But I can speak to what I know about we publicly. So I, I'm in the generation that heard of Craig as a 12-year-old on a couch talking to Oprah, uh, learned about sweatshops. There was a huge outrage around this idea that racialized kids from around the world were making pennies on the dollar to sew clothing for kids who lived in other spaces. And I guess as, as most folks who came to this country as immigrants or refugees, it the idea that children were so enclosed for us wasn't foreign for me. Children often end up doing a lot of labor in other countries. So I, from the beginning, there was a bit of a disconnect from what it was they were trying to achieve. Um, and then they were kind of growing as I was moving through. And I lived in areas of the world that, or areas of the city that We Charity never came to, or Free the Children at the time never came to. They like to focus on kind of um, middle class and wealthy private schools and neighborhoods to mobilize those young people, which nobody wants to talk about, right? They really started by mobilizing other white kids first. And then slowly over the years, we see a push towards them being more involved in all kinds of schools. So I had friends, I had family members, I had people who worked for Free the Children and A decade ago, people were saying the exact same thing, terrible working conditions, incredibly racist and hostile work environments. Um, You know, the folks leading the organization seemed to think that they were saving kids from across the way. Um, My family's from East Africa. So whenever I'd go back home and visit, I'd hear horror stories about how wells were half built and things were half done and money was being moved. I mean, all of it is anecdotal. All of it is people's experiences and stories, but none of it was being reported on here. And I guess maybe I can say that nothing was surprising to me because this is how a lot of nonprofits function. This is how a lot of international organizations function. So what people were sharing was really similar to what other organizations were doing as well, although the charitable sector is a little bit always hesitant to to also take some responsibility for other organizations that we know are thriving and doing well now that do very have some very similar practices to to we and so i wrote the article out of a sense of like okay and what like all right there's this 
you know, organization doing these terrible things. And there are tons of organizations doing these terrible things. Why don't we actually talk about the systems that make it possible for people to get away with these kinds of things with a complete lack of accountability? Why don't we talk about what makes it possible for donors to fund organizations that don't have any kind of impact on the communities they say that they're serving? So I think that's a part of where my interest and desire came out of to to write something and be involved. And then to be fair, I got tired quite quickly. Because I thought, what's going to happen? Yeah. There's no accountability. We, we, I'm not used to seeing organizations that are run primarily by middle class white folks have any kind of accountability. So I wasn't expecting to see any accountability. But as we've seen, this has become a bit of a very interesting final outcome, whatever the final outcome might look like. I mean, I've organization closing their doors in this very public way, selling off billions of dollars worth of assets. What happens next is going to be really interesting to keep keep watching. Yeah, I think the fallout has just been astronomical and so, so unexpected. Um, just a few days ago, they announced that they were shutting down all their we we announced they were shutting down all their Canadian operations and they're primarily based out of Toronto. So I don't know what their presence is in the U.S. or what sort of headquarters they might have in other parts of the world. But it's really, I guess the word is incredible to see this and just so unexpected. You know, we've seen the finance minister resign, you know, the the reason given being policy disagreements with the prime minister over the coronavirus response. But really, I think my suspicion is that it's related to we. Um, and so this has kind of shaken Canada quite a bit. You know, a, a bit of a dangerous thing that I think most people don't want to speak to is if you watch the way politics works over time, it's really clear that politicians, elected officials don't make any money from their annual salaries. So how do they make money? How do most of our elected officials leave office and end up with millions of dollars in their bank account, end up with relationships that are the equivalent to an astronomical amount of money? How does that happen? And I think the way in which money is distributed through the public service um, does benefit the elected officials that choose to benefit from the system in this particular way. And in this case, I think you can, what we're seeing is a bit of that unveiling. And I don't know if a lot of people have gotten there yet. I think a lot of folks are more interested in the story around a charity that's gone rogue. That's now, you know, for lack of a better word, being disciplined in public to see like, this is the consequence if you go rogue as a charity, but what people don't want to talk about is how the charitable sector is used as a way for government officials to move money and put it in their own pocket or fund their friends or fund other people who are then going to turn around and maybe give them a slice of that pie. So it's, I think we see that. I think we can see how complicated and complex this is. And I think the reason it's so dangerous and nobody wants to touch it too closely is because everybody who has a little bit of power knows that this is how it works. Yeah. And, you know, we see with conservative governments often, they make deals with corporations, they privatize. It's very on the surface and you can, it's out in the open and we can see it. But when you have liberal governments, it's hidden, it's discreet. And as you mentioned, um, 
and you also talked about this in your article, like it's interwoven in the public service. Like we need to question the idea that the public service is neutral. I think about in Ontario, the big cronyism scandal that happened shortly after um, this last government was elected, all the top diplomats, sorry, not diplomats, um, bureaucrats um, were fired and replaced. And so if we're thinking that the public service is neutral, why even the need to do that? Um, And it really calls into question that neutralities. Um, So I don't know if you have any comments on that. Yeah, power isn't neutral. I think this is, we we have an expectation. I think the the myth that Canadians are sold is that um, you elect your officials and then your public servants are regular, hardworking Canadians who apply for a job and get the job and move up through the ranks just like anybody else would in any other job. It's not any other job, right? The criteria, the networking, the nepotism, the relationships that you need to have to even get in that front door are pretty extreme. And then just because you're in the door, to be able to move up the levels, you have to be fairly politically engaged. In order to become an assistant deputy minister, in order to work in the office directly with the minister, there has to be some values alignment. You have to know, you have to be willing to concede to a certain kind of power, right? And so this idea that we have that our public servants are people who are just hardworking Canadians and doing their bit, they're citizens. They're citizens of our country who have the right to make decisions about who they vote for and don't vote for, for sure. But they're not neutral in the ways that they're making decisions. And the second we believe they're neutral, we also then believe that they represent the interest of all Canadians. How do you know what all Canadians want or need or what resources are appropriate if you don't resemble them, if you don't have the same experiences, if you've never, how do you run a housing program if you've never lived in social housing? How do you uh, inform, you know, childcare policies if you've never done childcare, if you've never been the primary source of childcare in your community or your family. Um, and so we, we have this sense that by people's positions alone, by this idea of the public service, people are kind of objective and neutral. Just because we ask public servants not to comment on political affairs publicly does not mean that they're neutral in private. And um, you've touched on this a little bit, but I am curious to hear more from you about uh, the ways in which the nonprofits, nonprofits in general in Canada that are similar to we, me to we, that are still going to exist and uh, how these nonprofits have in, like insidiously bad labor practices. However, the nonprofit sector seems not to have those reported, um, but also the ways in which uh, the framing that you saw in your childhood from your social location being so different than perhaps the white teachers you had or um, upper middle class people who think that the harm is abroad because we saw that Craig Kielberger and his brother um, and the organization that became such a big organization and a monster in its of itself. I don't think I can be sued like Canada land, but um, but how the framing was always that the issues are abroad, the issues are abroad. And I know that I initially when I heard the first story of Craig being inspired by um, the story of the Pakistani boy who was sold to a carpet factory. My dad is Pakistani. I'm half Pakistani. I identify as Pakistani. I was like, oh, no, my people are horrible. Like they have bad. They're bad. And these people are going to help them and how in Canada, that's such like a a narrative that gets recycled while 
there's like a, a scraping and um, emptying and hollowing of communities here to do that work over there. Yeah, I, yeah, there, I mean, there's so much, there's so much to say on that. We, I think the purpose of individuals do it, organizations do it. And I talk about this a lot in the equity work that I do. This idea that in order to make ourselves feel better, we talk about the horrible things that are happening outside of us out there. Um, and we then take up this position of, and, and we're better because we're going to help resolve whatever problems those people over there have. Um, and then we jump into this saving, um, what we call kind of a white savior model. Um, and it's, it's funny because you can actually see quite, not funny, but it's interesting because you can see really great parallels, right? You can see that largely to the 2015 election, Justin Trudeau was able to win by mobilizing a much younger demographic. And that younger demographic was mobilized because of this, like, there are people we need to save idea, right? That, that ran through his entire election campaign. And, and the, the most heartbreaking promise of all that he had made was, we're going to get Indigenous communities drinking water. There is a lack of clean drinking water um, on a number of different Indigenous reserves, and we are going to do this work. I mean, here we are six years later, and has that been resolved? I think a good answer is no. But this, you, both the Kilbergers and we and Trudeau tap into this sense that people have of wanting to do good out there so that they feel like they're not bad people. And this is exactly how power and racism and all these things work, right? Upper class or middle class white kids in a high school, what are they resolving really? Who are they in relationship with really? What are the major issues in their schools, right? Because we're talking about teenagers who are looking probably within the circle of their 25, 30 people radius. What are major issues within that 25, 30 people radius that they actually have to resolve? when you consider where they are and where they live. And so you have to give them something to think that they need to fix and resolve. And so it's so easy to point abroad. Um, and it's hard to have the kind of, unless you're you know, a kid that grows up understanding complexity because you're sending money back home. So you have a experience in your house that's different than your experience in school. You're sending money back home every month. If your parents have, have done something different and change your ideas of um, your 25, 30, 40 people are, have much more complex and urgent issues than that group of middle-class white kids, right? So I think then you, you so it's easier, I think, for, for all of us, I'm making the assumption, but it's easier then for all of us to think, why are you talking about sending, like, why are you talking about a young boy in Pakistan? Like, I was just there six months ago, which is, Right. It, it's, there's something about it that doesn't quite match up or or make sense. Uh, but we have, you know, it's easy to fix everyone else. It's much harder to um, it, it would have been much harder for a 12 year old Craig to ask himself, what makes it possible for me to meet with a prime minister? Yeah, I certainly couldn't meet with a prime minister when I was 12 years old. I certainly wasn't invited to sit at the tables of dignitaries. Oprah certainly doesn't know who the hell I am. Yeah. Right. So what access and resources were possible for you at 12 years old to do all these things? Sure. It's incredible. You had a voice and you could use it, but I had a voice too. I told my teachers they were racist all the time. That didn't get me a seat on a national television show. That didn't get me $43 million in assets of the buildings. Right. So what, and it's harder 
I don't think I, maybe he, I, I doubt it. A lot of white folks don't ask themselves that. What makes it possible for me to have this level of access that somebody else might not, might not have? So we get bartered and sold for, for a shot at a couch conversation, right? Our, it's our communities that get used to legitimize other people's goodness. Yeah, the way that um, the youth are sort of wrapped up into this is so interesting. Um, I want to speak a little bit about my experience with Midawi um, in high school. So the Midawi Club, it wasn't called the Midawi Club, it was called the Social Justice Club. But the only social justice club we had in my high school, which was just a, was a Catholic high school in Mississauga, was the Midawi Club. And it was called the Social Justice Club. But all we did in the name of social justice was um, fundraise for We Day <laughs> and, um, and fundraise to send money to Free the Children projects. And so we were really wrapped up into Midawi and, and, you know, I saw this organization as like, it was so interesting as like a, somebody from India looking at so many of their operations are in India. And I think my opinion of it back then was, oh, like, like Canada and the Western world as the place with the resources should be the one helping India. Um, I've obviously complicated that and nuanced that in, in many ways since, but I thought that, you know, now myself as a Canadian, I should do that as well. And, you know, I fundraised and I went on a Midui trip to India in the end of high school, and this was supported by my social justice club. And it was such a, like, it was such a weird experience. And I completely left the organization after that because of how just uncomfortable it was and realizing how the and I didn't have the words in the language back then but you just get this feeling that it's wrong and the the level of even racism within the trips themselves made me so so uncomfortable I was <laughs> in those trips I was hanging out with the local people who weren't even from the same region as I was more than I was with the trip participants because of how uncomfortable it all was. And so um, I think we're like, we're kind of like swept up into it. And, and I think they prey really well on kids who want to do social justice. And then in my situation, this was the only opportunity I had to do social justice within high school. And now I'm thinking about how much this is being um, used as an extension of the liberal party even to instill a particular type of social justice into youth. Um, Sandy and Nora were, were one of the first people who talked about this on their podcast, but they named Me to We as the youth outreach arm of the Liberal Party. And I agree completely, right? Like you would go to We Day and you have like Liberal members of Parliament speaking and telling you alongside Headley and like whoever else that you want to, that we all think are like icons of Canadian music or whatever. Like I've never listened to Headley, but 
ever all of my classmates were really into them. So I had I had to be impressed. Um, and you make these associations as a young person, but it just takes a few experiences, I think, of critical thought to be like, okay, this is wrong. Um, and I came to that pretty quickly. But it's just so interesting how every single high schooler knows what Midui is. Um, and for some, like, that's what they get their idea of justice and it doesn't move past that. I think, so there's a good lesson for us here, right? Which is young people are our mobilizers, right? Young people create this really like dynamic and vibrant momentum to move ideas and topics and themes and injustices forward. And we know this because we, this has been proven over time, but this is also more reinforced by all of these things. I'm I'm not surprised to hear anybody say that, you know, it's the youth outreach arm. We've had lots of versions of youth, the youth outreach arms. I think the liberal party has just been a little more innovative than other parties. We know that things like, uh, like a young partisan party does don't, they don't work anymore. People aren't engaged in party politics in quite the same way anymore. And a large number of particularly the young people in Canada no longer believe in the platforms of a number of our parties, right? The three party move, four party move. I always forget the Green Party, sorry, <laughs> West Coast, but the par- partisan <laughs> politics doesn't quite work for people. And you really see that when people are talking about things like climate change too, right? They're like, we don't, we don't care what any party does. We just need all the parties to do this thing, right? Especially young people. So, I mean, you can see it. I just think there's such a, I have such a deep sadness around it because we don't, we sell this idea of good to young people that doesn't actually have anything to do with justice. It doesn't have anything to do with empathy and good humanity and, um, and critical thought. We don't ask them to actively think about what it is that they want to offer the world. We just tell them this is, what's, this is their only option for doing anything that feels good. Um, and there's this emphasis now on feeling good as opposed to doing good. Mm-hmm. I feel better. I, you know, I, um, I don't, I don't know if um, folks remember, but I might be dating myself, but back in the day, UNICEF used to give out these boxes and instead of candy for Halloween, you had to ask for change. And then you'd bring this back into the school and whatever money the school fundraise would go to UNICEF would go to help kids abroad. And this is an early model of the same thing, right? It's um, forego candy and, you know, get money. What are you talking about forego candy? I'm going to get candy and give you no change, right? Like, what, what do you mean I have to choose? But then I remember there was a sense of like superiority for the kids who brought back, I was seven or eight kids who brought back a whole thing full of pennies. People would be like, yeah, you know, you sacrificed for those kids overseas. I was like, I am that kid overseas. I don't need pennies, probably need something else, but pennies is not going to cut it for me, right? I want candy. So, you know, I think there's, we're, we're starting to see it change um, in, I think, a little more insidious and, and sinister ways, unfortunately, um, because then can you say the, the alt-right that we're seeing rise in Canada is the outreach arm of the Conservative Party? I don't know. It's, I think that's also an interesting thing to put on the table. And then what happens in 10 years? Yeah, that is very interesting. You know, we look at things like Ontario Proud and Canada Proud. And you're right, like most people, most people I know would identify as nonpartisan. I think I know 
the people I sound, surround myself with more progressive people than not. So a lot of us don't find ourselves necessarily satisfied with any particular party, but that seems to be even more common. I just wanted to extend on the UNICEF. There was also the World Vision 30-hour famine, which I don't know if that dates me, but when I was in high school, there was 30-hour famine where people literally do the same thing where you're sacrificing. And I think the broader conversation is about could be about how the nonprofits that are in Canadian high schools and middle schools use this sacrifice type of model, which is kind of an extension of um, social work in Canada and colonialism and these arguably like Catholic founding notions of the nation that have been documented by like many anti-racist social work profs and anti-racist scholars and um, indigenous leaders and thinkers um, and elders uh, about how Canada does good and how are you saying the feel good instead of the do good which is to make them feel good. So you repent, you sacrifice, you do a 30 hour famine in high school and raise a bunch of money, but you're allowed to eat rice during the famine. You're all, and, and so they're LARPing poverty yeah, in some the way. The one bowl of rice that you're allowed yeah. to have. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So it's not, it's not fully aging me, I guess, but I, I guess, um, how you have so much work experience, um, in the nonprofit sector. And I, no, you can't speak to everything, but I think you've also observed stuff. And I know from graduate school, we've both observed things perhaps that don't that go awry when certain people also try to do projects. Maybe even our peers. I know from my classes who wanted to do kind of um, global health field work or just field work in countries that they're not from and how the conceptions and notions of other nations they get from high school that are informed by 30 hour famine like World Vision, UNICEF, Me to We, carry on with them into adulthood. And then we see that in governance and they don't realize, like you said, the jar of pennies doesn't do anything. People need to lift sanctions. People need policy change. Um, Canada is extracting from so many different nations right now. Um, and that's what's harming people. But I wonder, I wonder if you have thoughts on that connection or how these ideas are carried into adulthood um, and they govern us in many ways. Yeah, you know, so recently I've been running, I, I've done work around justice and equity for a long time. And so mostly I've done consulting work with organizations. And then when all of this was, when all of the, the when the murder of George Floyd took place um, in May 2020 and COVID, the COVID pandemic, we started to see it really impacting racialized women in particular um, on the front lines um, and Black women and Black communities. I started to offer these workshops around white supremacy, around how to create action solution, action oriented solutions to pushing people to do more than just feel good. Because I was so bothered by these little black symbols that corporate companies were putting out with white writing on them saying, we stand in solidarity with black communities. And all I could think was, you know, it takes a communications person, what, 15 minutes to put that together and slap it onto a social media page. That's it. Like somebody dies. And this is this is communities are saying that they're being harmed ongoingly in this very repetitive, consistent way. And that's it. We get a box. And that that's the feel good for me. Right. It's people were like, but we did something I'm like posting a black box and hashtagging blackout Tuesday literally took you 35 seconds. Like it didn't take any time. You feel good, but you haven't done good. You haven't done anything different. And yeah. So, I mean, you see it come up. These workshops are not filled with young people. They're filled with adults. Mm. They're filled with 
you know, adults who have everyday jobs and who have the ability and who have the ability and opportunity to change systems everywhere they are, right? That are struggling with how to do something better. So yeah, of course, the lessons that we learn in our, as young people, as teenagers, as children, carry us all the way into adulthood. And then we end up replicating those exact lessons on top of other people. And the work is so much harder. You say, you know, you're saying to just lift sanctions. What happens when you say that and somebody's like, what, what, what sanction? It's almost, you have to do a one-on-one to get people to a place where they can actually contribute positively. And I think sometimes that's the purpose of the whole machine, right? It's the work of doing the one-on-one with one individual is so time-consuming, takes so much time, times that by whatever the population is in Canada. And all of a sudden, all you're doing is educating and training and building awareness. You never get to the action phase because people are so far behind any kind of any kind of knowledge base. So I think there's a purpose that we have these kinds of nonprofits functioning in high schools. I think young people have largely the most impressionable minds. And in my work have always deeply seen and believed that young people can be mobilized to action far quicker than people who are a little more entrenched in their thinking. And so if you have the ability to build critical thought and action-based strategies and really talk about systems and structures to a group of 13, 14-year-old teenagers, when they're 30, 35, 40 years old, and they have a job in public service, they are not going to be the ones that sign off on something that doesn't feel that doesn't that they know won't do good. They're going to be much more likely to ask really difficult questions and come up with more nuanced approaches to doing work. But I think there's a purpose to focusing in those age groups in particular and doing things like that. I did the 30-hour famine as well. I like ate halfway through because I was like, why am I eating rice? Like, I don't <laughs> I fast. You know what I mean? Like, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah as Muslims, it's really funny to We're me. Like, but yeah, fast. Like, I don't understand. Why do I have to? So I, I ended up, I just wanted to spend, you know, the night at the school, which probably is what most teenagers do 30-hour famine for. <laughs> um, but yeah, we don't, we're not teaching young people anything productive by encouraging them to, you know, so here's the, uh, actually, here's the analogy I'll give you, or here's the image I'll give you. If all you've learned how to do is collect pennies for UNICEF, all you're going to do when someone else gets killed is write a check. You, all, you, you are not going to change your model. You've learned, you collect pennies, you give them to UNICEF, you feel good about it. So the rest of your life, you're going to think that feeling good is about signing, giving a donation, right? And what did we see happen when George Floyd was murdered? We saw people offering money, like random people, like, can I throw you $25? I was like, I mean, 100% reparations are required and needed for different groups, but what's that going to do? I'm not sure what $25 is going to do in the big scheme of things either, right? So. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you for um, grounding things and connecting them into other politics um, and other events going on and giving us that bigger picture that's more systemic instead of just kind of the the critique of me to we that just focuses on such an isolated thing that's so granular when it's so much more diffused and spread out. And I, I'm thinking also about this piece you wrote 
um, because we're thinking about the the line that you just said is so eloquent and going to stick with me that when somebody's murdered, you end up writing a check or the, the idea of that because of the way you're trained from high school that a jar of pennies or now we don't have a penny in Canada, but that money will resolve these things into paper over things and the way multiculturalism over also papers over things in Canada and the way we will simultaneously deport people or we being as we all know, like a complicated we here, but Canada will, as a state and uh, people in power, deport people while vilifying other people while saying we are Canada and multicultural and uh, how that's a tool. But in 2017, you wrote a piece that I thought about a lot and has have others I know called the anti-Somali feedback loop. And I was wondering if we could talk to you a bit about the anti-Somali feedback loop, but also um, if you could first give the audience who may not know about the waves of migration of Somalis in Canada a bit of a just aerial view of what that was like, the three waves that you've described in your work. Sure. So when I started before, but also when I started my master's program, I was, so I never did a bachelor's, which is something a lot of people actually don't know. So I never did an undergraduate degree um, and then was very clear that I didn't need to do one and I, I thought I could do a master's um, in retrospect. That's, that's a little brazen. But at the time, I was like, forget the academic institution. You can do what you want. Um, and I should say, because I watched white people do what they wanted. And so I just there was a moment for me where I thought, if they can do it, there must be a way that I can do this differently. And so I went into the master's program and it was really clear to me that Everyone I was talking to about doing some work with the Somali community wanted to focus, wanted me to focus on the damage that the Somali community does to the broader Toronto space. And I thought that was such an interesting place that I was being pigeonholed into. And the reason I thought it was interesting was because it was pretty clear from my own anecdotal evidence, from communities' anecdotal evidence, that the way we arrived into the country had a lot to do with the ways in which um, people were taking us up. So the media was taking us up, politicians were taking us up. There was arrival is as much a function of uh, settlement as you know everything else. So it's not that communities are not acclimatizing. It's usually about how they got here, what happened to bring them to that point. So that you know the anti-Somali feedback loop is still one of the pieces that I'm I'm the most proud of, I think. Um, and I go back to it a lot too, myself, um, in my own learning. And there are things I would change in it now and all kinds of things. But I'm most proud of it because Somalis did not come into this country kind of accidentally. It was very much informed through state policies. And then they get taken up, they get taken up and further you know, vilified and criminalized, even though their arrival was not of their choosing or of their of their desire of design. And so they came into the country in kind of three major waves, very tiny. And by tiny, I mean, like, in the tens of groups, um, you know, I, I don't have the article in front of me, so I'll forget. But anyway, they came in three major waves. The, the second, most Somalis came into this country after 91, um, or so after 93, and they were settled primarily as refugees. Um, and they came here because of Canada's involvement in Somalia through uh, the Somalia affair. And a lot of people don't know, but the Somalia affair is, is it's still considered a fairly large military cover up um, where two 16 year old boys 
um, one in particular, Shidane, um, were taken behind army barracks um, and beaten to death with a yellow pages. And this, this, it's a very gruesome moment in Canadian history. And the reason it's so stark is because Canada had an image at the time of being a peacekeeping nation. And there's this saying all the time that Canada was betrayed by just a few unscrupulous men. You know, they, they say this over and over again. The men, by and large, um, who committed the act of murder were um, Indigenous and racialized, but it was sanctioned by higher up white um, lieutenants and officers. So a lot happens. It, it, a lot happened. There's pages and pages and pages of documentation. I'm likely not articulating it all that well. I don't think anybody's done a really great analysis on the Somalia affair, but it goes away. The inquiry, by and large, gets kind of silenced and it disappears off the books. And at that point, you start to see that Canada opens its doors for Somalis. And the reason is uh, in great part because of this embarrassment, this shame and this embarrassment around Canada's involvement in the Somali territories in Somalia in the 90s. And then you start to see how Somalis become talked about and characterized through the media as they arrive. So they're described as people who, you know, eat with their hands and have multiple wives. Um, They don't you know, deal well with strangers. They run into a number of different incidences where, you know, the police sick dogs on them. And all this is done while Canada is also saying, you know, we're welcoming refugees and we're welcoming people from all over the world to come to Canada, a safe haven. And then they're criminalized because of it. So as Somalis start to kind of react and respond back to this state legislation, they're further criminalized. So I think that piece was really done in a way to look at how the media and how legislation, policy legislation, work together to create restrictions for communities. And then a law was passed where Somalis were unable to get um, access to getting an ID without a legal form, a photo ID from Somalia which was in the middle of a civil war. So there were no issuing authorities. Uh, and to my knowledge, only two groups were really impacted by that, by that law, the um, Afghanis and Somalis. And so a lot of Somali elders who have been in this country for over 30 years still don't have permanent residency or a citizenship. So what happens to a community when you restrict their ability to get key documents that they need to go to school, to get work, to get healthcare, um, you prolong, you take a community and you put them in a state of limbo for a significant amount of time, there's going to be reverberating impacts. And that shows up in the way that the community also feels, I think, in response to, to the state. So that's a very uncomplex, the paper, the article is significantly more complex, um, but it's just interesting. And you can see it, you can really see it every time um, the media talks about Somalis, they are they actually reiterate the exact same narrative that was used 30 years ago. Nothing, nothing changes drastically. Thank you for that. And we will link the paper for people to read um, in the show notes. And I wanted to talk a bit, and you touched on this, um, of the, the laws that were put in uh, to restrict immigration that did primarily affect Somalis, but then also surveillance of the Somali community in Canada and how that gets tied into counterterrorism efforts or counter-extremism efforts that the police are spearheading um, as if the police have a positive relationship with Black people in this country. 
and how this sense of national security is then used to further demonize particular communities in Canada. And I think Somali, um, the Somali community as Black and Muslim gets caught in that in one of the worst ways possible. Um, and I'm also thinking about Bill C-51, the counterterrorism bill that, um, you know, you mentioned they used uh, an image of a Somali man and saying jihad is coming to Canada. The conservatives use that to promote the bill. And I've read about that bill from a legal perspective and how it just truly is an excuse to infringe on on people's rights. And we know who's going to be at the, at the brunt of that enforcement the most. So um, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on surveillance um, in general. Yeah, so I'm hosting a conversation on September 25th in the evening, about 5 p.m., which is looking at Black, the experience of Black Muslims and the policing apparatus, what I call more generally the security and policing apparatus of Canada. Um, I think we're very, these defund conversations around the police have been um, incredibly um, invigorating. Like it's, it's incredible to me to think about how somebody like Angela Davis, you know, years ago would say, uh, abolish the police and people, and she was criminalized. She was put in jail. She was followed. She was surveilled. Um, and now she's still alive to see people say things like defund the police and abolish the police. And, um, it's working. Like it's, it's happening. We see it happening in real, real time. And one of the ways in which I think the conversation gets really simplified is we just talk about the police. We say defund the police and abolish the police. And we've been, we've just talked about police. In some cases, people are talking about um, border, border control. They're talking about CBSA. They're talking about ICE in in the United States. Uh, But we, we don't talk about what we don't talk about the complex experience of black people who are also Muslim um, for a large part because the Muslim community also does not talk about or deal with um, anti-black racism within, within. And, you know, it's interesting, um, you know, Najwa, you were talking about the event that I did years ago that you saw me speak at. I think I talked about anti-black racism in the Muslim community as part of my talk. And it was if I had done that exact talk today, I feel as if I would have gotten a very different response. It was not welcomed. That that conversation was not welcomed at that time. And so the Somali community is one of the largest black Muslim communities in Canada, which is something a lot of people aren't aware of. And also quite visibly Muslim, very visibly Muslim, especially the elders in our community, um, especially the women, the older women in our community often are wearing a hijab. And so are then, and older men in our community are also visibly Muslim because they'll be wearing a prayer cap or they'll be wearing clothes that suggest to Canadians this sense of Muslimness, whatever, whatever that means for them. And so they're very often picked out of a crowd and ostracized and criminalized and surveilled. Um, and then there are quite large mosques in Toronto where there are very large Somali contingents. And we know that most of the surveillance efforts, especially from Public Safety Canada, especially from CSIS, really focus in on mosques. So you've got this very visible um, contingent sitting in the mosque. Um, we also aren't a financially strong community. We're not, we don't have a lot of financial capital or social capital. So um, we don't have any lobbying efforts on our behalf 
right? So you see this, and this happens a lot because you see when a community that has a lot of social capital, somebody says something negative about it, they're quick to sit down, have meetings with ministers, talk about how inappropriate it is, send a representative to a media station to talk about the good things that are happening within the community. Like these are all ways that communities build and make sure they're maintaining some kind of um, control over their own narrative. So we don't necessarily have that. And, you know, Ryan, you spoke to this bill C-51 was, it was largely sold, um, sold uh, in part by this image of this like scary, I say this in quotations, but this scary looking black man wearing, um, you know, something on his head that resembles some Muslim thing. Nobody's quite ever sure what it is. Is it a turban? Is it a, what, what is it? We don't know what it is, but it looks dangerous. We've seen people wearing these things before. Um, and we don't want these kinds of people coming here. That paired with that very neat media um, narrative of Somalis coming in and being dangerous and we didn't understand them and having multiple wives like has sets up this really interesting national imagination around Somali people in this country. And you see a lot of focus and it's not it's not benign focus. Right. You've got. CVE funded programs that start off as policing initiatives are done through local policing departments in areas like Rexdale that are actually extremist alert programs, right? All of a sudden you start to see how very closely tied policing is with things like CSIS and our security apparatuses. And so there is, there's a fairly strong focus on the Somali community because they are black and Muslim. And we don't talk about how it's much easier to assume that criminals, whether terrorists or, and I say criminals loosely, but criminals uh, are, whether they're terrorists or whether they're, they, you know, do street crime are always black in our imaginations. Anyway, they're almost always black. So this is the place I think where there's quite a lot of focus and attention, um, but nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to talk about it. Any conversation where I talk about um, the experiences, well, any conversation where I bring up Public Safety Canada or I bring up CSIS, people get very nervous about right away. Fair enough. Um, but nobody also wants to talk about how the Muslim community, particularly non-Black Muslims, point to Black Muslims yeah. to get away from having to engage with members of CSIS or members of Public Safety Canada. This is a it's a really dangerous precedent to set because whatever happens to black Muslims will happen to everybody. Bill C-51 is such a great example of this. Right. And we can also see that the terror legislation is being mobilized against indigenous communities, too. Right. So it's it's getting it's getting quite complicated. And I think all of us need to really, really pay attention to this, especially because if we believe that in 10 years it's going to be possible or in five years to defund the police completely. And I think we're heading in that direction. We're going to see an uptake in things like CSIS because the Canadian state's just not going to defund the police without setting up a quieter police force behind the scenes. So we, we have to be prepared for that and we have to be, we have to be attentive to it. Yeah. And I, and I actually vaguely do remember um, the spoken word piece you did. I, I think I remember people not being settled by it that are that were non-black Muslims um, that were Arab and Pakistani, I would say, from my observations, but very much so agree with you on that. And I appreciate you bringing it up. And I think a lot of non-black Muslims who are taking up the defunding calls right now um, and beginning to be like it was September 11th a few days ago, and that's the day where people reshare trauma like it's a trauma mill on Twitter 
um, and people, non-black Muslims were doing weird threads about how, what their families did to essentially assimilate after 9-11. And I saw some of my friends um, who are coincidentally Somali, but also a few of my other friends who I think their parents are less into the assimilating into the nation um, point out how they were just showing how they basically sold out other Muslims to differentiate themselves between the good Muslim, bad Muslim dichotomy, which is something um, I would say like upwardly mobile Pakistanis um, and Arabs are very guilty of um, consistently. Um, So I appreciate you pointing that out. And I'm wondering if we can also discuss a bit about how the surveillance uh, or the police apparatus and surveillance has also it's it's almost um, been described as finishing business from when there were black Muslims who were radicals in the United States were targeted and surveilled for being anti-Vietnam War or mobilizing their communities, building food programs and social services that the government never put in place. And now black Muslims are being targeted. So H. Rap Brown is in jail. Uh, a few other black Muslims are, have been killed. Um, one wasn't killed in Detroit, Imam Lukman. And so how black Muslims also face repercussions for their activism. And that's been something for decades. Yeah, I think that. I, so what I'd say is I think that's a particular narrative to the U.S. I'd say for the most part, black Muslims, there, there's a very small population of black Muslims that have have been here for a very long time, but the growing number of black Muslims are actually coming from other countries in which Canada has some kind of global involvement. Um, and so the, the complication here is right. As we come back to this, this earlier piece around um, how do you help people see that Canada's involvement and interference in foreign countries actually trickles down into the policies that they make here. So if, um, Canada's looking to have a stronger approach on, um, you know, anti-terror, right? If Canada is saying, you know, we're, we're not, we're not here for any kind of terrorist activity. And then they do something like pull in 25,000, say Syrian refugees who are struggling because of terror in their own countries can come here. We'll meet you at the airport. We'll give you jackets and then we'll ignore you for, you know, decades, um, to come. But if, if we can, we can do that. We have to also, and I say we again loosely, Canada then also has a responsibility to making it appear as if they're being tough on terrorism internally, right? Because when when you think about it, our policies and laws and legislation around terror are not equivalent to any kind of terrorist led activity, right? Like we're having a very extreme response to something that doesn't drastically impact us here. And so it's a bit of, it's PR at a, at a national scale, right? It's, we've got to make our, our image as a safe haven for people has to also be complemented with some strict laws about those other people that we don't want coming in to this country, right? So I don't, I, I, I feel as if I'm also not explaining this in the way that it's appearing in my head, but there, there is a sense of Canada trying to repair its foreign image and from, because we've never really recovered from that peacekeeping narrative, right? Canada's never really recovered from that peacekeeping narrative. And so it doesn't surprise me that there's this extreme response to Somalis in this country that a person, uh, you know, loosely, we don't know, from Al-Shabaab, and that image is used to mobilize Bill C-51 because Canada hasn't yet repaired its its image from um, the Somalia affair, 
30 years ago, right? And so any opportunity to make it look as if they interfered appropriately or their actions were legitimate is what they constantly are striving to do. And it's interesting because I don't see other communities mobilized in the same way in this country. Like I look at images and pictures all the time and we often use American imagery and things from, you know, the American state to help also justify our, ourselves as different, but we don't use, you know, I've never seen an image of a Syrian person. I've never seen an image of an Arab, right? I've like, I've never seen a picture of a Kuwaiti on a billboard saying, this is what we don't want here. So what, what, what's happening What's happening in the national imagination that this, the Somali person keeps coming up as a problem? And I see this over and over and over again, because I think about the Toronto 8, 8 or the Toronto 18. I can never remember how many people were involved in that. Um, but I also, of all the people there, I remember Canada also hyper-focusing on the Somali images again, right? So what is it about using Black Muslim figures that makes us feel better? or makes us feel safer. Also, I should say, we have this very valuable opportunity to turn back time. Public Safety Canada is, is not an old institution. It's only been around since 2001. So there's a very incredible opportunity to not have this become uh, Homeland Security, right? Yeah. We have, we're only 19 years in. Um, there's an opportunity to completely remove it at this stage anyway. Yes. Thank you. I didn't know that Public Safety Canada was only 19 years old. That's really... Yeah, I also didn't know that. Yeah, <laughs> that's like really interesting. Thank you for... That's so... It was created around the same time as ICE. Yeah. Not exactly, but is very young. And now, of course, the person in charge of that is Bill Blair, who is a former chief of police of the Toronto Police Service and is in charge of enforcing things like B Bill C I keep mixing up the B and the C when I say that Bill C51 <laughs> but I want to talk a little bit about Canada's international image but primarily well I, I want to talk about citizenship and the issues that um, people have had with deportation and you've You've touched on this a bit in your writing. Um, Desmond Cole has also talked about it a lot. You know, the U UN Human Rights Committee has intervened in Canada a few times because of deportation orders that Canada has issued against primarily young Somali people who have gotten involved with um, the criminal legal system and were originally wards of the state. Um, or crown wards um, came in as refugees and the government's never applied for citizenship for them. And so as a result, they never got, they never got full status here in Canada. And because of those same counterterrorism laws and immigration laws, if you commit a crime that has, I think that currently it's a sentence of two years, um, you are automatically deported or you the I think the official line is you lose your right to appeal your deportation order. Um, and so that has happened to numerous people in in Canada. Um, and I think of Abdul Abdi as one example. 
And I think things like that also stain Canada's international image, but I'm not concerned about that um, as much as I am about this gross irresponsibility that the child welfare system um, has and and the blood that it has on its hands um, when dealing with people who are who have escaped conflict and war and then put into situations now where they experience even more violence um, at the hands of the state or at the hands of foster families that they're put into. Um, so if you have any thoughts about that. You know, working in the youth sector, one of the most shameful and egregious harms um, or realities is the child welfare system. I mean, if you do any kind of work in the youth sector, you quickly see that the young people who struggle um, to access resources, struggle to move through their lives relatively untouched, struggle to thrive, have had some kind of interaction and engagement with child welfare, um, foster care, um, you know, been apprehended, even if it's just a, what we call like a soft touch, right? Even if it's just someone has come to their home to do an investigation because of a report made by somebody at school. And all of the research very clearly demonstrates that often Black communities, Indigenous communities, and then subsections, right? So newcomer communities, um, anybody that institutions feel like are not fulfilling what their idea is of the status quo in terms of raising your family, in terms of sending your kids to school, in terms of all of these things, become embroiled in the child welfare system, right? Um, the kid doesn't do well at school, yells at another kid, a counselor says, um, a guidance counselor says it must be something happening at home, right? We really see how all of these institutions are very tied up in child welfare, particularly for Black and, and Indigenous kids. And there's, a, again, a quite a, at the time, less, I think, I actually, I can't speak to it. I'm not sure of data. We don't collect enough race-based data to know um, what, how many young people who are Somali are in the child welfare system. But anecdotally, we know it's not a small, it's not a smaller insignificant amount of young people. And so one of the most egregious cases is Abdul's case, I think, in Halifax, just, um, and his sister, Fatuma. Like, it's just, you read it. Elle Jones put out an article very recently around detailing some of those experiences. She worked closely, I think, with the both of them to, to draft it. And just even when the case came out, I just, you know, your heart hurts to hear that it's even remotely possible that young people have been shuttled around from system to system to system. And nobody, nobody, not even the state, but also nobody applied for Canadian citizenship. Nobody in all the years they were moved and mm -hmm. shuttled. And then you have this young person who's been so damaged and harmed by all of these systems. And then you try and deport him to a place where he doesn't, to a place where his family is from, the same family you took him from to put him in foster care. So he has no relationship or connection to anybody. It's just like you, you put all of that together and you almost cannot believe the callousness of the state and of these systems towards actual human beings, right? And then to hear people say things like, if you commit a crime, you deserve to get deported. We're talking about a young person who 
didn't get access to the things he was entitled to throughout his entire life through no fault of his own that now we're criminalizing and demonizing. You know, so you, you read things like this and you hear things like this and you just think, do we have, does this country have no hearts? Do we not, do we not give the same level of humanity? What makes it possible to um, think Craig is a great guy, even after he bamboozled us out of $912 million, but we want to deport someone who has been impacted by the institutions and systems this country set up? Right. Like the scale, you start to see that the scale is not even remotely similar. The scope of these two young, you know, people is not even we don't treat people the same. It's re- that's really clear. We don't treat people the same. So I think that's just such an egregious example. And without a doubt, this is the one that got some media attention. Uh, there are likely more and deportations are not simple. One of the things that I always think most people are unaware of when we talk about deportations is one deportations are done through public safety Canada, but citizenship is done through immigration is done through citizenship and immigration Canada. Right. So I'd like to know more about what these agencies are sharing with one another to transfer somebody from being a Canadian citizen into public safety Canada to be, to be deported. Right. And I, and the reason this is so interesting is because when you, are catching flack around deportation, oftentimes people go to the immigration minister to ask questions. And this is why you start to see, um, I think at the time it was Ralph Goodall, if I'm not mistaken, you start to see Ahmed Hussein, who at that time was our minister for immigration, start to move comments or deflect comments over to public safety. But then you also start to see that while ministers might be having conversations because they're elected officials within the same party cabinet, public servants are actually cannot have the same kinds of conversations that ministers might be having, right? Whose responsibility is it? In Abdul's case, he never had got his citizenship. To some degree, the the minister of immigration, citizenship and immigration has the ability to talk about what that process will look like. But because the deportation order has already been granted, now it's shuttled over to public safety. So you also start to see how people get lost in a bit of the mess between you know, elected officials in public service. And you start to see how it's not very neutral at all. Everyone's just passing the buck to whoever they think um, is going to take responsibility for this in a very, in a very public way. But deportations are, again, nothing, nothing surprising or, or shocking. I think we need to, as much attention as we pay, pay to our policing and security apparatuses, I think border security, deportations, all the detention, all of these things are things we actively have to have to pay attention to because they're the consequence, right? We devise these laws and rules and there's a consequence to, in quotations, if you, if you don't follow them, right? You're a citizen until you're not. But when you're not a citizen, you have to be ejected somehow. And deportation and detention is that ejection out, out of the state. So they're, they're the, the cleanup crew, for lack of a, of a better way to put it, right? CSIS has to first create a dossier on you. They have to then put you through the legal system. Then once they find that you don't belong, this is the group that then comes back and and kicks you out or maintains our borders so that you can't get in in the first place. So all of these things work together, I think, as part of this broader, broader policing and security apparatus. But we don't spend enough time putting them together. And maybe the, the more complicated thing for the Somali community is we don't have a choice. We don't have a choice. We're 
all public safety is concerned and interested and confused about Somali communities. Uh, the police are concerned and confused about Somali communities. So we have no choice but to be fully aware of how all of these agencies work together. Thank you for mapping that out and always articulating kind of the way uh, institutions do work together and the uh, kind of being able to put together and uphold multiple identities and multiple moving parts um, and not just working in silos or thinking about things in silos. And hearing that, I also think about how um, justice is differently applied to different youth and like the murder of Rena Virk in British Columbia is a big one. And um, the empathy that was given to the two young white teens who murdered her with um, a white male and uh, I know you're from the West Coast and that's not the topic of today, but just thinking about um, other images of how people were framed. So the Quebec mosque shooter, how he's framed in some public memory or by media and which images they use of him versus the images they use of Somali people that you've touched on a bit earlier in the show. And I know you've done some work to kind of you've done a lot of narrative work that I think is beautiful. And I think people should look for your work and how you mentioned suspending damage earlier and kind of the niche in the box that people wanted to put you in. And I'm wondering if you could talk more on the work you do to proliferate other narratives that mainstream media or um, non-Black non people want to proliferate negative images, but the work you do to suspend damage, uh, which I think is so beautiful and what you're up to right now and what you've been up to and other things you've witnessed to suspend damage. Oh, that's such a, that's such a good question. I, I think I do this all the time. I think I offer different stories about Somali people every, op every chance I get. I think I've, I've found a way to, so I'm active on social media. I really enjoy Twitter. I think it's a great place to connect with people. I largely stay out of the bogus pieces of it. I'm quick with that block button. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> and so I stay, I stay out of the, the, the fray quite a bit, but I use every opportunity I can to share or retweet or talk about. Um, I almost always, if people ask me about where I'm from or what my, what my community is engaged in, I, I have a rule, which is I don't talk about the challenges my community is facing, unless I think people in the room have the ability to make some changes to those challenges. I'm not just going to repeat tragedy and trauma just so people feel, again, feel good about their life or feel good that they've come and listened to me. I'm, I'm only going to do it if I'm in a room with decision makers that I think can do something to change something. Otherwise, I talk about the beautiful parts of things that I grew up with my entire life that I think are stunning examples of Somali people. Uh, you know, the fact that we think we're the best at everything, right? Somalis, uh, I'm sure the ones listening in will laugh when they hear this, but the sense of like, <sighs> I am the first person to ever invent a car. And you're like, that is actually not true. <laughs> but we do this a lot in our community, right? This like fun boastfulness. It shows up in our poetry. It shows up in our songs. And so I talk about that a lot. I do my best to retweet things in my own language, retweet things or share things or send around articles about beautiful things people are doing all over the world. I'm a part of Mandek, which is a collective of Somali academics. We put out a podcast once a month. And so I'm always interested in learning cool things that 
uh, Somalis all over the globe are working on. And then we work together to pull that in. I do my best to co-write articles with people. I always work with young people. That's been something that has been in my heart for a long time. So people reach out to me all the time to ask me to do things. I connect them to the people that I think can help. Every conversation, if I see that there are no Somali people or Black people present, I talk about Somali people, I talk about Black people, um, is a way of kind of invoking them into this space. So I, th I think I do this often. I think we're so used to, especially folks who are not represented well in the world that we live in or within Canada, we're so used to somebody else talking about us, um, or we're used to talking about ourselves in private spaces. And I think we should do it publicly all of the time. People anywhere are going to look at you and say, oh, you're whatever, you're black. Oh, it's another black lady. So why don't I take this opportunity to talk about things that are critical and meaningful and beautiful in all the ways that matter? And I write. I think writing is such a valuable and useful tool. Um, and I try and be provocative with my writing very purposefully. Um, I'm not giving you information. I'm going to force you to think. I'm going to force you to think about something that I think can better the world for people who look like me as well. Thank you so much. And um, do you, do you want to add anything or I'm, I, or I'm good to wrap up, but I really appreciate this conversation. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy to wrap up. Thank you so much for, for having me. Thank you. So to wrap up, um, Usually I try to I try to end on some positives or or some kind of takeaway other people can have besides the episode, something like very tangible. And we're going to link a bunch of stuff in the show notes that you've mentioned today and that we've discussed. But um, I'm wondering, because also when I told my mom I was doing this, she was like, I love how and she's always been like a fan since she saw you speak. And she's always been appreciative when I told her you sat down and had a frozen yogurt with me. And during different times during the master's program, we're a person that I could think of went through this and did it and made me feel good and welcome. So I guess I'm wondering, she loved your poetry and I love your poetry and spoken kind of pieces in your reading. Are there, are there like a few books you'd recommend to people or a few pieces you'd recommend to people? And then also uh, where can people find out more about you and where can they follow you on social media? All great questions. So folks can follow me on Twitter at H-Y-M-I-R-E. And I also have a website, H-Y-M-I-R-E.ca. Um, feel free to, I regularly post all kinds of things up there. I, I mean, I'm writing with Ricochet right now, and I'm hoping to, to shake up a, a national newspaper a little bit by putting in some of my poetry and stories in there every now and again. Um, but I think the piece that I'm, the one piece that I'm most proud of is that anti-Somali feedback loop. So we talked about that today and folks will, will see a link to it. But also I wrote a, a series of short stories a few years ago called Black Woman, Everybody's Healer. And it's something that has stuck with me for quite some time primarily because Black women continue to take up the labor in doing the healing work of a lot of social justice movements, a lot of equity and justice movements. And we often um, don't celebrate or think about their contributions, particularly in Canada, enough. And um, I'm also launching, as I spoke to a little bit earlier, a podcast called The Black Unicorn. And the goal is to create a bit of a repository of experiences of Black women in Canada, and not just their information, which is always great, on how they've moved through their careers, but also how they've managed to survive and thrive within their careers. I think 
especially as younger people, I can't say I'm a young person anymore. I passed that threshold a little while ago, but as younger people, we don't spend enough time connecting to elders in our communities to ask them how they did it and what made it possible for them to continue to move and thrive. And so I hope that that will be launched uh, before the end of 2020, uh, hopefully by October and people will have a chance to kind of jump on there and also hear um, a little bit about them, but also about me. I'll be, I'll be doing some poetry and storytelling as part, as part of that process. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Uh, Ryan, feel free to jump in and say whatever you want to say, but we, this was such a great discussion for me to listen to and thank you for being so on board and agreeing to do this. Yeah. And thank you for the way you connect concepts so well. I think we had a really fulsome discussion about so many things and it was so nice to see the way we could connect them all and connect them to broader issues that that are affecting us right now. So I really appreciate um, your insight and thanks for joining us. Thank you both. This is a beautiful podcast. I'm looking forward to, to hearing more and listening in. Thank you. These episodes take a small team. Many episodes are hosted by Nashalina Khan solo, political episodes co-hosted by Ryan Deshpande, art and music by Post America, editing and music by Johnny Zapras, production assistance by Raymond Kanano. Consider giving to us on Patreon to help fuel our team with chai and other fun things at Patreon forward slash Habibdi Please. And find us on Twitter at Habibdi Please with a B 